Well, let's just start off by saying STEM's a total hoax. And I'll tell you why. STEM is designed for them. STEM is for them. Because we can have all the technology in the world we want. We can have all the maths, all the engineering. If you don't have the economic understanding of revenue flows and the demands of what people want and building it and bringing it to market, there won't ever be another job. Steve Sammartino is a futurist and public educator who doesn't mind calling it as he sees it. He's also the author of a new book called the lessons school forgot. Teachers, if you think he's just another one of these authors critical of schools, don't worry, he's not, and we talk a lot about what he loved about school. But we do get an invitation to think more critically about the lessons we all need to learn as people who'll be living and working in the years ahead. Steve also loves art, and we discuss three short films which bring some of his ideas to life, like the one called Sight, with music by Hannon Revivo you're hearing now. Stay with us as we journey into the future with an Aussie stirrer and trailblazer, Steve Sammartino. The best short films for lifelong learning, recommended by teachers for teachers. This is Short Films Teachers Love, with your host, Richard Lee. Tell me about your own school experience. Was it was it good or was it happy? What was it like? It was happy. I enjoyed school. I particularly enjoyed primary school. Because primary school has breadth, incredible breadth, the things that you're learning, it's all so new. You're learning to read, to write, to do art, sport, to move your body. You're having social communication. You're learning certain things in the classroom, how to interact with people. Really thrived in primary school. And secondary school, uh, I enjoyed social life in secondary school, but not so much classroom life. And uh, I struggled a bit. Part of it's my fault because I just wasn't, mature enough uh, to put in the effort required to get results. So, so what did they sort of steer you towards? If you're sort of this distracted kid, what did they say? What was their, the advice they were giving you oh, in well, year 11 and 12? You know? If you don't do well in year 9 maths, how will you get into year 10 maths? And if you don't get, do well in year 10 maths, there's no chance of you getting into year 11 maths at the top grade. And if you don't get into the top grade, you, you, look, you're, you're in trouble. You're going to eat dog food the rest of your life. So you better buckle down, boy. Uh, and you've got to make sure that your shirt is tucked in and your hair is cut way up high. That's what we need. And this is before high haircuts were cool, right? This is the 90s. <laughs> uh, and and yeah. you know what? It's really disenfranchising because they're like, this is what you have to learn and here's why and you better decide what you want to do for the rest of your life now while you're 16. Make those decisions because you've got to get the right subjects to get into the right uni course to get into the... And it's, mate, it, it's so much pressure at an age where you... Like your head's upside down when you're a teenage boy. You can't be planning the rest of your life. Your hormones are going crazy. You're, you, 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 I should be out in the jungle. I, I mean, and so I yeah, just kind of yeah. retreated into that classic teenage boy of not following the rules, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So did you? So you went to uni then? What did you yeah, do? I studied economics at uni, and uh, I, look, I did better at uni than I did at high school. And I think the reason was is that. Um, I don't like people telling me what to do. I, like, I really hate it. I hate it. And, and so university has this, here's, here's the coursework. If you want to pass it, great. If you want to turn up, turn up. If you want to hand it in on time, hand it in on time. We don't care. I really like that. There's something about someone not telling me what to do that I found the time and the space to do it. And I think also I, I generally had an interest in business and economics and marketing. And so... Um, because it was, I only had to do the things that I was interested in, I found it a bit easier to find the effort to do it. So, But you went to uni largely on the advice. I mean, I remember you saying you went to uni 
your yeah. dad had told you, don't end up doing what I'm doing. And, you know, oh. you, you went there with the idea that this was going to set you up for life. Of course and you were it was. On the of way. course it was. Look, my dad was a tradesman farmer, worked really hard, toiled seven days a week. And he's like, Steve, whatever you do, you want to get into that corporate scene, Steve. You go there, you study some stuff. It's lunches, it's big wages, it's all that, it's bonuses. And, mate, you'll just be like catching planes around. Like you study for these years and then you'll, you'll be earning 10 times what I'm earning. And you'll, you'll just go through life and it'll be fantastic, Steve. Everything. So go to school, get good results. Go to uni, get a big job in a big company with big brands, work in there and live happily ever after. That was the formula. Yeah, and so yeah. I just did what my dad told me. But I, but I can remember thinking after I graduated from uni, the very first day, the first day, thinking nine to five, I don't know how much I like this. I don't, I don't know if I can do this. I remember like getting up at like six in the morning, fighting traffic, going to an office, it felt like there was a whole lot of nothing happening, like just paperwork and just I just didn't even, it's like, what is this? None of this is real. Like n- no one was making anything. You know, I worked for a <laughs> consumer goods company in marketing and, and sales and it was like, it was almost like nothing was real. We were just like this ephemery that just kind of hung around the outside of it and fed on this beast. Tell me about leaving. Yeah. Uh, look, I, when I had had enough, one day I just decided on a Friday, I go, I've had enough, I've had enough. And I went in. To my boss at the time, and I was in a r- relatively senior position. I said, "Look, I'm, I'm going to leave. Here's my, here's my notice." And he he read the letter. He goes, "Oh, you're leaving? Oh, okay, all right." And he reads the notice. He says, "Oh, you, today is your last day." I said, "Yeah." He said, "No, nah, no, nah, you have to give four weeks' notice." And I said, "Well, well I said, here's what will happen. Monday will come, and I won't be here." <laughs> <laughs> and I left. I didn't even have anything to go to. Um, yeah, yeah, but I just, yeah. it was just, I was really depressed, you know. In that, you know, well, I don't know if depression's the right word. But I was in that in that zone where it just wasn't working for me, and I, I had to get out. So, so you went off and, and you be you did some other interesting things. Give me give me some highlights of you've done Lego cars and you know oh, you, you sort of launched yeah. yourself into the, a career of self of, of independent working and making it up as you went along. That, I mean, that, that must right. have been a huge transition. A huge transition. <clears throat> but I want to go back a little bit and say that you know I was very entrepreneurial in the early days. So I had an egg egg farm, an organic egg farm when I was 10 or 11, you know, making money on, on the farm, selling eggs, you know, real business, you know, product inputs, outputs, pricing, selling, doing all of those things. I had a clothing company in my teenage and, um, and in my 20s uh, that I built part-time and sold to another company. So I always had these entrepreneurial ventures going on the side and I only really dropped them because my dad was like, nah, that's not the game. The game is working for a big company. And, and it was almost like I, I had to... It was 13 years of like hanging out in this corporate world. I realized that that's not really me. I like projects and doing different things. And so um, then I, I just left with nothing to go to. I started a beverage company, um, which was selling an anti-stress drink. So it was the opposite of a, of, a, of a Red Bull because I was so stressed with the corporate world, right? I wouldn't ever have to slow down and, you know, I'm, I'm anti-hustle. Chill. Mate, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm, 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 I'm over this whole hustle talk, 18 hours yeah. a day hustle. That's a hoax. I don't know who invented that. Uh, Mm. And so I I, I launched this beverage company, but I failed and I lost a lot of money and uh, I failed pretty badly because I had big company thinking instead of small company thinking. I was thinking about building big systems and and leveraging systems instead of building something from the ground up. And so I ended up losing everything. I ended up sort of living back in my old bedroom at my mum and dad's, you know, when I wasn't, you know, a teenager. Pretty embarrassingly, had zero money and had nothing left. And I just thought I'll just, um, I'll, uh, I'll um, start a startup. So I started Rentoids.com, 
which was one of the very first sharing economy startups, 2005. And, and here's where it gets embarrassing. I could have had lots of money and, and made billions apparently. I had people renting out their spare bedrooms on my website way back in 2006, 2007. And here I am, here I am, clever me, um, taking them off the website because I was worried about the legalities. I had people, I had people renting out themselves as drivers on rentoid.com, right? And you can see it if you go on the internet way back machine, you can see the, the stuff on there, um, which is the, the, the history of the internet stuff. And, uh, and look, and, and that was really interesting learning for me because uh, I did really well in the short term. It was like an eBay for renting and it grew a lot and I was on TV and it was going really big and I learned a lot about tech then again. Well, I, I did tech when I was a 10-year-old coding way back, but then I sort of came back into it. And, uh, but it, and then it fell off a bit of a cliff, but I had an exit. I sold it to a public company, but it was mainly a tech buyer. They bought the back end of the technology more than the business itself. But, you know, it was, it was okay. And doing those projects, kind of having a failure, then having a win, sort of you realize that you can actually make a living. You realize that even with the ups and downs and the failures, you can make a living if you have a crack. And it's, it's easy to think that, oh, I'm lucky the company pays this much. But generally, employees are worth three times what a company pays them. They are. Otherwise, you wouldn't. It wouldn't work. The business model wouldn't work. So, just back to your book for the moment. So, you, I guess, as as the way I kind of see it, it's about uh, financial intelligence in a changing world. Is that a summary of what yeah, the book is about? It, it is. It actually is about financial intelligence. But see, people have this weird view that finance and how you earn your money are different things. They feel like that personal finance is the thing after you earn money, but they're actually the same thing. And understanding the changing needs in the marketplace for the type of skills that are in demand, it's all part of the same bundle. So what it is is the things that you don't learn in school. Right? So this is not an anti-school book or what school should be. This is a things that you might want to know despite what you learn at school. So it goes into um, the revolution and the history of school and... Uh, and why it was designed the way it was and how it doesn't really help you with your personal finances. It was designed to create employees for the industrial factory system. And so I go through that first bit called the revolution. The second bit is revenue. And this is the different ways we can get money. So earned money, invested money, invented money. School's just about earning money, nothing else. All right? Well, it certainly was when I went there. I know it's changing a little bit. And then the last part is about reinventing yourself how to learn the skills that are valuable for the future, how to become entrepreneurial, how to, be, how to run your own projects, how to become a freelancer, how to get your startup on. Get, get the, the vibe that we've all got inside us that gets kicked out of us for 13 years of school. So, yeah. So it took me 13 years of school and 13 years of doing a job I didn't like to work out what I really needed to be. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And, and there's this phrase, I mean, you know, there's a big push these days for STEM, so science, technology, engineering and maths, but you've got this phrase esteem, which is just explain that. That includes some entrepreneurial stuff. Yeah, in there, well, it? let's just start off by saying STEM's a total hoax. And I'll tell you why. It's just a hoax. STEM is designed for them. STEM is for them, right? Because STEM is still being subservient and being a cog in their industrial machine. They just worked out that their machine didn't have enough science and engineering and technology and maths in it. So they said, go and learn STEM and we'll still plug you into our machine. Esteem is building a machine for yourself because it in includes economics and entrepreneurship. 
because we can have all the technology in the world we want. We can have all the maths, all the engineering. If you don't have the economic understanding of revenue flows and the demands of what people want and building it and bringing it to market, there won't ever be another job. Right? So we need entrepreneurship and economics. And so that's what I'm about with Esteem is building in the two missing E's. Because without that, you can have garage heroes. And we all know someone who's a great technologist and got this amazing technology in their garage. Well, it's, it's about bringing it to the market. That's where the value gets created. And so we don't, have an, we don't value entrepreneurship because what do we hear? Jobs and growth. Well, guess what? There are no jobs without entrepreneurs. And one thing I know for sure is that yesterday's jobs in yesterday's industries, they're going away. Mm-hmm. And you made, I remember you made some comment about, um, you know, you can't just copy someone else's idea and go, that'll be a success. Like everything is about the creativity of whatever it is that you see needs to be done. Is that, is that right. a good way yeah. of putting it? So <clears throat> the business we are in is the problems that we solve, right? Now, just because someone solved the problem one way doesn't mean it'll work for you necessarily. There are certain formulas that work. But one thing that's different with business and science is that business, our world is our beaker. So our, our, our experiment, the environment in which we experiment is in a constant state of flux. So what worked yesterday might not work tomorrow. So it needs to have your spin on it, I think. And I think if it's got your energy and your personality and your creativity inside of it, then you'll have a unique proposition around it. Uh, but, but also um, the world changes a lot. And so you, you need to be honest. Yeah, you can learn from others and copy, but I, I really think you need your interpretation on it. Um, because people smell it. I know, very unscientific of me. They really do. If your heart's in it, they sense it. So the obvious question that you you would probably get asked a bit is is what do you do? But before I ask you that, I, I've just I went to a talk on the weekend um, by Sarah Bishop, who's an actor, director, writer, producer, and she said, you know, as someone who's not doing a regular nine to five job, she says she hates the question. So what do you do? Because it requires her to narrow down to just one label people love labels because yeah oh that's that's you but she says i like about 10 different things and they say well you know um if you had to pick one what would it be and she said no that's like you know me asking you i like you know do you like pizza or meatballs and you go well i like both we'll just pick one what is it no you actually <laughs> like all these different things I so what do you, what do you say to people oh, when they ask God. you what do you do uh now i actually say author Right, okay. but but people call me a futurist more often than not, and I'm happy to go with that mm. because they pay more money for futurists. <laughs> I'm happy to go with it. Uh, yeah. But but look, basically, um, if I was to say to you and the and, and the listeners and the viewers, just in in truth, the truth is, I'm a uh, a freelancer who teaches people about business and the future. That's really it. And and so what I do is I basically put three parts together: anthropology, that's human behaviour. Uh, technology, so that's you know what's changing, and then the economics. So what are the numbers? Because economic is the modern day scoreboard, right? It's not about money. It's just about how we interact with each other and have social and financial contracts with each other. And so I just mash the three up of those together. Technology is the stuff that changes, and humanity and anthropology is the stuff that doesn't change our behaviour. So you put those two together, and you can get an equation of what the future might look like. Yeah, and and that you know in some ways a nice segue to. Um, you know, thinking about the future requires some creativity, some imagination. So I asked you to pick uh, three short films that yeah. have inspired you or affected you along the way. So um, <laughs> one, one of them, and, and I want to jump to this one first, it's called One Minute Time Machine. Excuse me. Do you mind if I uh, 
the, the short summary of it is there's a guy who comes up, he's sitting on a bench and he's sitting next to a girl and he's got this little one minute time machine um, with him and he's trying to um, impress her and each time he makes a mistake, he presses it and he comes back and he keeps getting better and better at... Um, Groundhog Day gra- style. Groundhog Day style. He keeps getting better mm. at doing it well. Mm. Um, and But it turns out that she's kind of like a physicist as well. Hey, you like science? Science. My five-year-old niece likes science. I have a doctorate in quantum mechanics. And she, oh, like she says to him, you, you realise that each time you press that, you're dying. So, at the other end, it's dying because it's a parallel universe. And then yeah. it gets quite quirky <laughs> at the end, and there's some funny scenes where, like, you know, they show yeah. what happened in the past. Yeah. I, I originally yeah. liked it because I thought that our lives are a little bit like that. You actually do get more second chances than you think. And, and the whole idea of school is that don't fail, don't make a mistake, no red pen, get a perfect score, or it's over for you. It's over. You'll be eating dog food, brother. Like, that's kind of – they don't say that, but that's how it feels, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, this, this movie made me feel like, actually, life's a little bit more like you actually get more second chances. So long as it doesn't kill you, you get second chances, and you get a lot of them. In fact, every day is another chance, isn't it? You can start today and say, well, I'm not going to follow yesterday's script. And I, and I like that, but it, it did um, – yeah, it, it, um, it's a little bit dark as well, and I didn't realise that until after. Well, well, the dark side as well, it made me, I don't know whether you, you made this comment in relation to this film, but you're saying about how, um, you know, even with new technologies and new things that get developed, we it's like driving a car and the, and the smoke behind. Was that in relation yes, to this? Yes, it was, yeah. So, it's so, a lovely a picture of the, the, yeah. the fear you have around new things. Yeah, yeah. so I'm, I'm, I'm scared of technology, even though I'm heavily involved in it. And, and my brother used to say, your greatest, obsess- your greatest fear becomes your greatest obsession. And so um, what happens with technology is we forge ahead, we always go forward and we're using the technology to go faster into the future and we tend not to look behind. The externalities usually happen behind and they don't bubble up until much later. It's like a car, the exhaust pipes, you know, probably by design are at the back or maybe because (laughs) horses had exhaust pipes that are at the back as well. I don't know, right? Um, but, But you don't see it and you forge ahead and sometimes because you can't see the externalities or the costs, you know the the you know the pollution coming out of the tailpipe. You can forge ahead without really realizing what the impact is, and then when you get there, you go, "Oh, God, goodness me, we didn't think of that." Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I just think of that every day when I see another smartphone or a kid on a screen, or oh, and you yeah, go, yeah. "All the you know the Chinese factories and the environmental costs. Of this it must be just what are we doing?" You know, but it's, it's under it's the rug, and scary. no one wants to see it. Mm. No one wants to see it. And you know, I always say the sun always shines in Turak, and 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 or wherever you happen to live. Have you ever noticed how um, the people who are the major beneficiaries of uh, economic change always live in clean and beautiful environments and those who are the um, recipients of the pollution, it's always on the other side of town. If the financiers or the owners of capital had to live where they produce the goods, if they had to live right there, I wonder if they'd care more about the environment they're creating. Mm -hmm. Scary. Um, Let's talk about sight. Patrick. Patrick. Oh, hi. Hi, Daphne. How are you? Sorry. It's okay. You look great. Thank you. I I thought it was incredibly well put together. I mean, it was Hollywood-level sci-fi kind of visually. It was very interesting. But I think it's a glimpse into the future of ambient computing. So at the moment, what we've got is um, technology that requires us to hold it with our hands or interact with it or go to a computer and be on it. We have to... It's like a crying baby. We've got to, you know, hug it and caress it and it beeps in our pocket. We've got to play with it, right? It's immature technology. And so um, this is uh, the idea that 
you'll have contact lenses that have computational abilities and head-up displays and augmented reality instead of a smartphone. And this gentleman, uh, if you can call him that, goes on, an, on a date where he's using an app to um, give him advice on what to do next you know, with the girl that he's with and things that she likes and he's Google searching her and all of those things. And it turns out pretty evil where he's kind of really um, manipulating her. And I just liked it at first because I thought, wow, this is scary. Why are you drinking? What's that? No. A dating app. No, 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 no. Oh, oh my God. God. It's for I programming. It's just my luck, a frigging gauge of but I also thought this is where science fiction becomes really important because science is a fork in the road, right? And even though the technology is inevitable, um, how we interact with it isn't. So the technology will forge ahead and we will. We will have uh, contact lenses and go beyond smartphone and ambient computing. But what we allow to happen legally in the regulatory environment is up to us. How it gets shaped is up to us. It's like occupational health and safety. That wasn't there when the factories first opened. We just chopped off people's arms. Yeah, so sorry about that, Tony. Sorry about that yeah. arm. But, you know, we've got to get the Model Ts out, brother. People yeah. are waiting to buy yeah. them. And so this, this is that. For me, it's really important that we consider what could happen before it happens so that we can shape it. And so that, for me, was really interesting. It's don't just let the technology be. Shape the technology. Let's uh, move on to the last film that you chose called Pixel. There's an old discarded TV, like a 1980s TV, and, and bursting outside of the TV are all these pixels which form the 1980s retro arcade games. So Donkey Kong and Bomb Jack and... Pac-Man, and they all go around Frogger. and Frogger, and they all yeah. eat up a city. And it looks really, it's amazing to watch. And everything turns into little pixels. And in the long run, uh, you know, the whole world becomes pixelated. And I feel like in a way it sort of represents the digitization of the world. And then the world actually floating in space turns into a little little, uh, a little cube, a little block, a little cube, <laughs> which is cool and funny. But it's almost as though that's when it started, when, you know, in the late 80s when computers became affordable to everyone and gaming and then the world's become this big game of computers eating each other and more technology eating itself but the reason I picked it in, in the first instance the reason I like that is that that turned into a movie and what I loved is that something small like a side project like this pixel movie they actually sold the rights to a major Hollywood studio and there was a movie called pixel that came out afterwards but it first started you know six years ago with this um, short film that people made and for me it it said, hey, sometimes funny little cool things that you like can become something far bigger and more important and into a bigger economic opportunity, hence the importance of small projects. Mm. Tell me about then your appreciation of art, obviously, and, and this is where I've, I've come to see that you, you um, are not against art, which is no. exciting. <laughs> so. Are you going to tell everyone the truth? Come on, tell everyone the truth what happened. Come on, tell them. <laughs> I, was, I was having a go at, uh, at Steve about something that he wrote, uh, and where was it? It was called the uh, We Are Losers in the Video Streaming War, and it sounded like Steve was an extreme, um, beyond-the-pale economic rationalist who didn't value art. He, he valued art as, as uh, just like a, a series of phone numbers in a great... Uh, 
I don't know how to describe it, but I, I, I misread what you had been writing about because you do appreciate art, don't you? I love art. So, well, I, my bad. Every, no, that's fine. Every day I, I do an artistic little heading of um, as I procrastinate and plan the day. Um, so I absolutely love art. You know, I, I didn't really like art that much as a kid. It's funny because you know what? You get put into these categories. Oh, you're, you're good at maths. You're good at sport. You're good at this. You're good at art. And if your art isn't as... Uh, tasteful as what people appreciate then you're not an art you, you can't draw and yeah and actually and actually the idea that drawing is art is crazy because art's all around us in so many ways even the way you treat someone can be a, an art form or the way you interact with people it's interesting because artistic pursuits like movies and music had an inordinate way of making very few people an extraordinary amount of money for a long time and that system's broken it's broken right and we're moving away from that idea that you have you know, a top 40 of music and if you get a record deal, you're going to get in there and if you get a number one hit. And that, that's broken down. Now that's gone into the long tail. And I don't, you know, I don't, even though I think that the music today isn't as good because there's, there aren't the gatekeepers, well, it's too bad, you know. We need to find a new business model. And, you know, if I look at someone like Banksy in the street art, that for me is interesting because there's no barriers to entry, no canvas, no curator, no anything, and you can just go out there and create your own art. And people have started to make a living off something that was a fringe activity. You know, if I look at rap, rap was no resources, no anything, you know, in the Bronx in the 1970s. Actually, what have we got? Nothing. We're a record player and a microphone. We're just going to sing and make up our voices, make our instruments and, you know, do aerosol art and break dancing. And, and that spawned a multi-billion dollar industry. So um, we need creativity to actually find tomorrow's business model. Yeah. And, and that's what was inspiring for me about the, uh, the VidCon conference, you know, seeing uh, the way that people now can become publishers and performers and writers and directors and all that sort of stuff without the need to go through these hoops of other people's decisions and other systems that they need to plug in to, to make it, if you like. So that's that's where I get. But I just want to go back to the to the, the question of what art is and why, why do you value short film? I mean, obviously you've seen some of these. What is it about short films and, and artistic pieces like that that, you know, that interest you? I think that economics follows art. I don't think art follows economics. So I actually think that um, the artistic pursuit and something that's invariably human and irrational is where the value comes from. Like, you know, even the horse's carriage, the first ones of those, they were more inefficient, more costly, more whatever than, than a horse and cart. But people wanted to do it because it was a kind of form of scientific art, right? And all of the really cool things that we see in life are humans experimenting, doing things because it's fun, because we enjoy it, because we're not robots, right? And if you can just do something and people say, why are you doing that? Because I want to actually, you know, and, and it's when people have the courage to pursue something that feels good inside your chest and you're expressing yourself, people want to be around that. They want to gravitate towards it. And that's where, you know, an economic engine of tomorrow can come from is from people doing human-based artistic experiments because it feels good. And that's what we do as humans, whether it's song or dance or drawing or interpretations or political commentary, those art forms are really important because they remind us what's really important. And from that, uh, you know, economics can evolve. And I like what you're saying. It's, it's much more nuanced and interesting to me than the regular advice you hear, which is follow your dream, follow oh, your follow passion. Follow your dream, follow your passion's a hoax. That's a hoax as well. We've had two hoaxes today. If I followed my passion, I'd be the um, worst professional surfer in the world who hasn't ever earned a dollar, <laughs> who is, is still trying to do... Yeah, it just wouldn't work out that well for me, right? There's a lot of things I'm passionate about. You should, I love singing. 
you don't want to yeah. hear me sing, right? Like, <laughs> and more parents need to teach their kids that before they go on American and Australian Idol. That's what we need yeah. in society today. Listen, Joey, I know you love singing. Just keep it at home, pal. Just, mate, you can have your passion. Just keep it in don't the house. Don't tell anyone else. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, I think yeah. that um, we what what most people do have though is a natural competence in certain areas. Yeah, not genius, but like some people have a above average natural competence. If you can marry up some competence that you have with the economics of that competence, then you can do better than average. You really can. It's actually easy to beat the average. It's hard to get inordinate wealth. It's very, look, I think being a billionaire is luck. I really do. Mm, mm. Right? And, and again, that's not part of the American dream narrative, right? Um, but if you just focus on some things that you've naturally got some skill for and then, and then work hard on those, actually, that, that's, it's easy to be passionate about that because it feels good when you get rewarded for doing something that you you're naturally good at. And if you're naturally good at it, you usually like it. And so, you know, ideas and sharing those ideas and communicating ideas is really what I like doing. And it was it was a small part of my jobs in corporate. And what I decided to do was to double down on that small part. Because I read once somewhere, it say that 10% rule, and it's in my new book. If you can find that thing that you're really good at 10% of the time in your job and do that full time, you'll double your income and half the amount of hours you work. Yeah, it worked out yeah. for me. But um, yeah. but the, I really think that's an interesting idea. Mm-hmm. So uh, as for advice, as we start to wind up, what other advice would you have, particularly for teachers who uh, are a large part of this audience, um, people who are thinking about learning and particularly even, you know, careers teachers who need to give advice to students about it's not just getting the course and getting yeah. into uni. What, what sort of oh, advice do you have well, for the, them? I mean, the first thing is we need to understand that there's about six or seven degrees you officially need to do that role in life like doctor and dentist and engineer and there's a few others. And yes, I want my doctors to be fully qualified, right? And I want them to be the smartest people in the school. No doubt, no doubt, right? But I think we need to teach kids that school is one part of an ongoing learning. Like the, the, the game is long and school and education aren't necessarily the same thing, right? So education goes on. I think teachers, if they can keep the breadth in what kids are learning, because there's this pyramid scheme you know in the final years it's thinner and thinner subjects racing for a score to get into university so we need to really empower kids to to pursue things outside of school because that might change and also you know that your career will probably change a number of times and the other thing i think would be great if teachers were more likely to ask a kid about something that they like and see how they can apply that to the subject they're studying. Like, you know, physics, for example. I never had a teacher come to me once and say, hey, Steve, you like surfing. Why don't we do a project on water dynamics and fluid dynamics and teach you a little bit about physics and then we can go out and test it on your surfboards and maybe you can make a surfboard. But I would have been thrilled. I would have been the best physics student in the world. But no, they said, Steve, here's the textbook. You've got to learn this. And so, yeah, and look, yeah. maybe some schools are doing that, but I still think there's a lot more room for that to, to let people... Uh, have a reason why we're learning the stuff. Don't just learn it why and then look, learn it, then look for a reason. What we need is a reason and then to learn it. I, I feel like it's back to front. Fantastic. Look, it's been great, great talking to you. Um, congratulations on the book launch. I was, I was following a bit of so, uh, social media on that and it, it looked, looked like it was huge. Well, I, it was I nearly don't 500 think it was all people. hype. It no, was, it was nearly 500 people. It was crazy. It's, a, it's amazing. It's an interesting yeah. topic. I mean, for a book launch, you know, and, and I think that people are saying, hey, I know there's more out there that I can learn and need to learn. And, you know, I think that that idea that not just jobs, you know, I really think that what we need to understand is we need revenue to live, not necessarily jobs. A job is one way, and maybe that suits you if you want to just be looked after and in that security realm. But if we understand that there's a lot of different ways to generate revenue, 
then we we can reduce everyone's risk and and have more sources of, of it going forward. Mm. Good stuff, and um, all the best for the next book and everything else that you're doing to make this package of your fascinating career more <laughs> successful. Thanks, Richard. Find all the film links and related notes in the description and look out for the edited highlights of this discussion on YouTube. This show is a proud member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts for educators, podcasts by educators. To learn more, visit edupodcastnetwork.com.